We are in the middle of a, actually that's not true, we're at the beginning of a a sermon series on the book of Joshua. And the reason that we're jumping into the book of Joshua is because um, most of us, um, the only time we ever read in the book of Joshua is either if we have kiddos and we're reading through the children's Bible, or if you grew up in a churchy context, maybe when you were like at vacation Bible school as a kid, you, you know, you read some of these stories in the book of Joshua. So a few months ago, I was kind of thinking about it, and I thought, you know what, let's see what the book of Joshua has to teach us about our present day faith and about our trust in Christ. And so we're jumping in. So last week, we looked at Joshua 1, verses 1 through 9, and, uh, and what we saw in that, that's that famous um, section of Scripture where it says, be strong and courageous. This is God talking to Joshua. Be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That would have been a good sermon to preach today. If I was a better planner, maybe we would have done that. So do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And the basic thesis of last week's sermon was that God has called each of us, he's called each of you into a life of courageous engagement. And in other words, this life he's called you into is one that really is going to be kind of scary. It's going to be terrifying. Just like Joshua and all these people going over to the promised land, it was going to be pretty scary, pretty terrifying for them to engage in warfare with all of these people. So God has called each of us into a life of courageous engagement, wherever it is that you're headed, wherever it is you are now, where we are utterly dependent upon him, right? We're utterly dependent upon him. We don't depend upon our strength, although it's a blessing that God has given to us. We don't uh, depend upon our intellectual ability, although God has also given that to us. We don't depend primarily upon our relationships, but rather we trust in God. We're utterly dependent upon him. Today, we're going to jump into uh, the next story, really, here in the book of Joshua. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray before we get into that. So let's take a moment. Father, thank you um, for just each of these people that are here today. I pray, Father, that um, you would um, open our minds so that we would be able to hear what it is that you're trying to, to, to tell us. Father, maybe more importantly, I pray that you would open our hearts so that we would actually be able to experience it as what it, whatever it is that you would have us to experience. And, and, and personally, what I would ask is that, uh, that no one would be able to leave this place today without having had a life-changing encounter or experience with you, the living God. And so, Father, we pray all these things today in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so um, this is a very unique Sunday in two ways as it pertains to the sermon. Uh, there are two things that I'm going to be doing today that, um, are, that I just never do. The first is I'm not going to open up with an illustration. So frequently I'll open up with like a story or some illustration about, you know, from the top 10 80s songs or something like that. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to introduce some theme that happens to be found in the scripture. And it's just sort of a way of introducing that theme. Well, I'm not going to do that today. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. The other thing I'm not going to do today is I'm actually not going to use the C.S. Lewis quote, all right? So that's a pretty big deal. Now, one might slip out of my mouth by accident, just, you know, if I'm, you know, not really paying attention, but those are two things I'm not doing. Now, back to the original point. Why is it that I'm not um, using an opening illustration today? Well, the reason I'm not using an opening illustration today is because the story is just good enough where it doesn't need an opening illustration. Here's why. So the Israelites, you know, are encamped on the other side of the Jordan. They're getting ready to go into Canaan. 
And, and so you can just imagine, I mean, it's not going to be that they're just going to visit. They're going to go over there, and there's going to be battles, and there's going to be fights, and there's going to be wars. And so you, like a scene from the movie 300, like these soldiers, you can just imagine them sort of in nervous anticipation. They're sitting around in groups. You know, some guys are solitary. They're sharpening their swords. They're sharpening their spears. They're talking about these upcoming battles. They're getting ready to go enter in. Joshua uh, turns to some of the guys and says, hey, let's, let's send a couple spies in to scout out the land. And so a couple guys who are spies go ahead across the Jordan. They make their way into Canaan, and they start looking around and sort of seeing where the best places are to hide, where they might attack from. And he says, oh, by the way, make sure to check out this one city, Jericho, because it's going to be the first place that we hit, right? And so these two spies make their way into Jericho, right? And so they make their way into Jericho, and, and as spies, where do they go? They go to a brothel, right? They go to some place where everybody's kind of trying to keep their heads down, you know what I mean? Like nobody's really looking around too much. And it's also a place where maybe, maybe where they can get some information. And so these two spies go into this, you know, home of this brothel or business place of the, this brothel, and they meet the woman who runs the brothel. Her name is Rahab. She's a prostitute, right? And so already we've got warfare, we've got espionage, and we've got a prostitute, right? I mean, this is why we do not need an opening illustration. And so what happens is somebody spots these guys, and they know that they're there to spy out the city of Jericho. And so they go and tell the king, hey, there's some spies that snuck in. So the king sends some people to, Jer- to Rahab's house. They knock on the door, and Rahab sends them on a wild goose chase, and she's hidden the men up on top of her house. Well, then, as she's getting ready to sort of lower them down through the window, she says, hey, but wait. You know, I want to make a deal with you because I've shown you kindness. I want you to show me mercy as well, right? And so this is the story we're getting ready to jump into. It needs no illustration. And so just follow me, if you will, as we read, beginning in Joshua 2, verses 1 through 24. Then Joshua, son of Nun, again, this is Joshua who's recently been commissioned by God to be this new leader after Moses' death, the leader of the Israelites. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho, So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now, a few things really quickly. One, this story is actually reminiscent of 40 years earlier when Moses sent 12 spies into the land of Canaan. You remember, 10 of the spies came back and they said, it's impossible. There are giants over there, right? They have walled cities. They have advanced warfare. There's no way we can win that battle. Only two of the 12 spies came back and said, no, God is with us. We can do it. One of those was Caleb, the other was Joshua, right? So apparently for Joshua, only two spies are needed. Good point there. Shittim, this, little, this town they move out from, is significant as well because in Numbers 25, we read about a group of Israelite men who engaged in immoral behavior with the Moabite women in the context of worshiping Baal. In other words, they're hanging out there in this town and there's some Moabite women who are relatively attractive and they say, hey, we want you to come to this feast, this religious feast of Baal. And uh, when they engage in this uh, sort of joining in this feast, what the text tells us is it says they literally prostituted themselves for their moral behavior with these women. So the mention of this place uh, is in regards to sort of the main character of the story, and the contrast of it with Rahab is probably very intentional. Second thing, or the third thing to notice, it's possible that the spies went to this brothel, right, to Rahab's home or place of business. It's possible they went for immoral reasons, right? But just back in the reference to Shittim. But I don't think so. In fact, I, the reason I don't think so is because the Bible never lets people off the hook, 
The Bible always shows and tells when people have failed. It's more likely that they went to Rahab's house, this brothel, because again, it's a place where people are trying not to be seen. One final point. We aren't told the names of the spies in the story, and I think that's actually significant. And I think the reason that we're not told the names of the spies in the story is because the author of this text, and ultimately God, wants us to keep our eyes on the main character, who in this case is this woman, a Baal-worshipping prostitute named Rahab. She is the central heroine of this story. Verse 2, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent his, this message to Rahab, bring out the men who, have came, who came to you and entered your house because they've come to spy on the whole land. And so all of a sudden, the intrigue in this story heightens, right? It was already pretty heightened already because they're getting ready to invade. They already are sneaking around as spies, but it heightens because the spies have been spotted. Somebody turned them in and reported them to the king of Jericho who sent men to capture them. They knock on the door. They confront Rahab, you know, assuming. You put yourself in Rahab's shoes for just a moment and think about it. If she disobeys the king's orders and then she's found out, then she would have been killed as a traitor, right? And, and not only that, but then, on the other hand, if she turns the spies in and the Israelites win this upcoming battle, then she would have died as well. And so here's Rahab forced with making a choice. She's really between a rock and a hard place. I mean, just think about that tension for just a moment. Verse 4. Verse 4 says this, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they'd come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly, and you may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under stalks of flax. She had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Now, let me just point out something here. Um, it appears that this is not uh, Rahab's first rodeo, right? Um, this is not the first time that she's been in this kind of tricky situation. Someone had tipped off the king, but apparently somebody had tipped her off as well, right? And as a result, she hid the spies on the roof under some flax, and she lies, sending the king's men on a wild goose chase. It's almost as if this wasn't the first time she had to hide someone and then lie to protect them, right? Maybe, maybe again, this had happened before. At this point, many people want to stop and they want to enter into discussions about ethics, and they want to say, you know, was it okay for Rahab to lie? And this, of course, leads to other ethical questions, like why would God choose to bless Rahab's lie, right? I mean, this is the stuff that you talk about in ethics classes in college. The responses range from, uh, on the one hand, that God in this story never excuses right, or condemns her lie. He doesn't do either one. Uh, all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is that lying in a wartime situation is maybe like killing in a wartime situation. When you're killing somebody, and it's not a wartime situation, it's murder. In war, it's justified. Lying to someone in a regular situation is wrong, but maybe lying in war is not wrong. Um, I don't know what the answer to the question is. Um, I would like to direct you to Steve Briggs. So yeah, please ask him that question after church. Maybe Ryan can talk about it. Uh, as fun as it might be to sort of camp out there and to talk about these ethical questions, that's not what we're going to do today. Verse 8. Verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. 
We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. It appears that not only has Rahab sided with the Israelites, but that she sided with them precisely because she believes that Yahweh is the one true God, not Baal, not Ashtoreth. She believes because she has heard of all that God has done for the Israelites, and she confesses the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. So she not only says that she believes, but then she acts courageously out of that belief. We're going to come back to that idea in a little bit. Verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. And so the deal that she strikes with these spies is not just a deal for her life, but it's a deal for her family's life as well. Verse 14, our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. Verse 17, now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land... You have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers, and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. And so at this point, Uh, The story seems to have some real similarities, actually, with the Passover story in Egypt, if you dig down a little bit, where the angel of death passes over the homes that have the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts. In this case, the men promise that her and her family, or that she and her family will be saved if they remain in that home. Verse 21, agreed, she replied, let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands, and all the people are melting in fear because of us. Again, This story really very easily could have been made into a movie. Maybe it has been made into a movie, for all I know. It would probably have to be rated R, though. It's got intrigue, right? It's got espionage. It's got betrayal. It's got all this stuff. But the question is, what do we do with it? What is our takeaway from the story? Well, I'm going to say this today, and of course, we could talk about a lot of different things, but the primary thing I want you guys to walk away with today is the following. It's this. It's that God saves broken people. Steve mentioned it this morning. God saves broken people who believe and trust in him, and then he does marvelous things in their lives, right? That was true for Rahab. It's true for you guys as well. 
Let's look at the very first part of that. God saves broken people. Verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Again, we, that's again a reminder of the prostitution that they were involved in with the Moabite women, the immoral behavior they were involved in with the Moabite women. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. So often, prostitution has been called the oldest profession, right? And you can guess why. Unfortunately, it's been around for a very, very long time, and the Bible very clearly condemns it not only for the prostitute, but for the one obviously visiting the prostitute as well. And I think the reason it's wrong is because prostitution takes something that should be sacred, sexuality, and turns it into a commodity or something to be consumed. And like all sins, all sins, it ultimately makes both parties less human, right? It makes you less human, less of who God designed you to be. And because God hates self-destructive activity or human destructive activity, it is a sin. That was true 3,700 years ago, and it's true today. Prostitutes, however, are not out of the reach of God's mercy. In fact, Jesus, if you remember, in the New Testament says this. He says, I tell you the truth. Again, he's talking to a crowd, talking to uh, Pharisees who are the religious guys. And he says, I tell you the truth. Tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Right? That's probably not just true 2,000 years ago when Jesus was talking. Probably actually true today. Right? Let that sink in a little bit. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe in him. And so part of what is being communicated here is that God saves broken people, right? It's the ones who don't know their brokenness that are ultimately lost and separate from God. Jesus told a parable that illustrated this point in Luke chapter 18. And it's this parable that he tells about a Pharisee, a church guy, a pastor type, a religious person, and a tax collector, a rebel, and a scoundrel. And listen to what Jesus uh, sort of talks about in the story. Uh, Luke 18, verse 9. It's not going to be up on the screen. To some who are confident of their own righteousness. Some who are confident of their own righteousness. Sounds like some of us. And look down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, the irreligious guy on the other hand, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner." One of my favorite prayers in the Bible. We can all pray it very easily and remember it. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus then says, I tell you the truth that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, believe it or not, this is good news for many of us today. For others, it's actually a little bit of a wake-up call. Because it's not only your sin that's a barrier to God, it's also your self-righteousness, right? And chances are, that's what most of us in this room struggle with. So God saves broken people. That's good news. The next piece we're going to talk about is that it's not just that he saves broken people, but he saves broken people who believe in and trust in him 
and then he does marvelous things in their lives. Look at verses 9 and 11. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now, here's what's really interesting about this passage. Uh, What's interesting here is that Rahab, as she's talking about God, doesn't use the generic term for God, El, which would have been sort of like, hey, I believe in God but rather she uses God's covenant name, Yahweh, here. And so her confession isn't just a confession that God exists, but her confession is that I believe that Yahweh is the only God. In other words, she says, your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Rahab believed in the one true God, and what's more important here is that not only did she believe in him, but she trusted in God, Yahweh, for her salvation. That's why she's listed in what is called the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. She's also mentioned in James 2.25, where we read about her, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And so the Bible is clear that we're all saved by grace through faith, and that true faith is not simply belief in God, because we're also told that the, even the demons believe, right? So believing, just believing, giving intellectual assent is not faith. True faith is always marked by trust in God, right? Trust in God. It's a life of repentance, a life of obedience, a life of self-sacrifice. And here, Rahab not only believes in God, she trusts him with her life. That's faith, right? So God saves broken people. By the way, that's all of us who believe and trust in him. And then the third point is that then he does marvelous things in their lives. And we're going to see what that meant for Rahab and hopefully think about what it might mean for us as well. I mentioned earlier that it's interesting that in the story we aren't told the names of the spies because the goal of this story is to focus on Rahab, not to focus on them. We've seen that she's mentioned in Hebrews 11 or the Hall of Faith with many of the Old Testament heroes and heroines who believed in God. She was also mentioned in James as an example of someone who not only believed in God, but trusted him with her life. Later in the Old Testament, we read that she married an Israelite man and started a family, right? And so there's this beautiful picture of redemption and restoration that occurs in her life. But that's not the most marvelous thing. The most marvelous thing is that we read in Matthew chapter 1, as we read the genealogy of Jesus traced through King David, we read the following says this, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. And so here's Rahab in the genealogy, the lineage of Jesus, in the lineage of King David. Rahab, the former Baal-worshipping prostitute, becomes the great-great-grandmother of King David, And it's from her family line that Jesus comes into the world to save the world from its sin, right? Pretty amazing. Like That's pretty marvelous. That that's the turn that her faith in God led to. I absolutely love the fact that God decided to build his church, to build our church, Seven Hills Fellowship, upon the faith of a redeemed prostitute, right? That's good. I mean, that is really, really amazing. When I was in college, um, I went to Covenant College up on Lookout Mountain, 
And maybe my sophomore year, there's a man named Tony Campolo that came to speak at Covenant College in our chapel service. And um, he uh, is a sociology or was a sociology professor at Eastern um, College, which is up in Pennsylvania. And, uh, and so he was telling the story in his chapel talk. He said, you know, I had flown from Pennsylvania all the way to, all the way to Honolulu, Hawaii to speak um, as a sociologist. And those of you guys, you know, who know when you go just fly to California, there's a three-hour time difference. And so if you usually wake up at, wake up at you know, say, 6 a.m. in the morning, you're waking up at 3 a.m. in California. And I'm not sure how, many, uh, how much earlier it is in Honolulu, but it's a lot. Anyway, the point is, Tony Campolo is telling the story, and he's saying, I flew all the way from Pennsylvania out to Honolulu. He got there. He said, I slept for a couple hours, but I woke up because it was like 10 o'clock Eastern. And he said, I was hungry. And so he said, I walked you know, out of my hotel room and was kind of looking for someplace that might be open. It was 3 a.m. at the time. So I walked around. Everything was closed. And he said, down a side street, I saw a sign for a diner. And he said, I walked down the side street and uh, put my hand on the diner, looked in there, and there was a you know, person or two. And he opened the door and he walked in. Again, it's you know, 3 a.m. It's what he called a greasy spoon. It's one of those places where everything's just a little dirty, a little musty. It smells like fried food and cigarettes, you know. But he was hungry, so he said he sat down at the bar, and he said uh, this big kind of guy who looked a little filthy came out and said, what do you want? And uh, Tony Campolo said he looked down at the menu, and it was one of those plastic menus, and it had like some dried egg on it, you know, and some mustard and ketchup. And he's like, I didn't touch the menu. He said, I'll have a cup of coffee and a donut. And he says that the guy who owned, uh, you know, or came out to, you know, wait on him, he said he had this dirty apron on. And when he asked for the donut, he said the guy looked at his hand and wiped it on his apron and he reached down to grab this donut, and he handed it to him, and Tony Campolo was like, all right. And he said, just a second later, he said this group of eight or nine women came in, and he said it was apparent that these were not just any women, but these were prostitutes. And so he said he was sitting at the bar at 3 a.m. in Honolulu drinking his coffee as this Christian sociologist, and he's surrounded by prostitutes, and he said, I just tried to make myself small. You know what I mean? Just tried to shrink. And, uh, and he said, you know, as he was sort of trying to make himself small, he heard these ladies talking, and he said one of them was a couple seats away from him, and uh, he heard her say, hey, tomorrow is my birthday. And, uh, and the ladies are like, oh, you know, what's your birthday? Great. And the lady goes, yeah, it's my 39th birthday. And, uh, and she said, nobody's, I've never had a birthday party. I've never had a birthday party. And some of the other ladies, and again, you can imagine their little crusty little course, all of their lives have been hard. And, and one of the ladies sort of sarcastically said, what do you want us to do about it? And, uh, and the lady um, said, oh, I don't expect anything. I'm just letting you know. And uh, so a few minutes later, the ladies get up and leave, and Tony's uh, sitting there at the bar again. He's heard this interaction, and uh, he talks to the guy who, you know, is wiping his hands on his shirt, and he says, hey, what's that lady's name? And he goes, oh, that's Agnes. And, uh, and Tony said, well, hey, I heard her mention that it's her birthday. He said, you know, what would you think if maybe tomorrow night, um, you know, we throw a birthday party for, him, for her? And the guy goes, yeah, they come in every night around 3.30. He said, that's brilliant. And, uh, and so Tony says, yeah, well, I'll go, and I'll, I'll go to the store, and I'll buy, you know, streamers and a, and a sign and all this stuff. And, 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 and then Tony says, I'll buy a cake. And the guy goes, no, 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 that's my deal. I'll, I'll make the cake. And Tony's like, eh, okay, gross. Anyway, so next night rolled around. Tony gets there at 245, decorates the diner, you know, all these streamers and signs everywhere. Happy birthday, Agnes. The man's wife, who works at the diner, has gotten the word out among sort of all the people that frequent the diner that they're going to throw a birthday party for Agnes. And uh, he said, you know, that he's there and everybody's supposed to so- show up at 3.15 because they know that she's getting there around 3.30. And so he said, here I am, you know, this Christian sociology professor, 
in this nasty, dirty spoon diner, and there are like, you know, 27 prostitutes, and I'm just crammed in there. And then Agnes walks in with all of her um, other crew, and at the same time, everybody else, surprise, right? And he said, uh, he said, you know, you could just um, hear a pin drop, that Agnes just sort of stood there, and he said, she just kind of looked down at the floor, and she was shocked, and he said she just sort of was, you know, playing with her hands a little bit. She didn't know what to do, and and then the guy whose name was Harry that made the cake that ran the restaurant came out with this cake full of candles that said, happy birthday, Agnes. And he walked over to her and he said, all right, Agnes, blow out the candles. <clears throat> and Tony Campola said that it was when she saw the cake that she just, you know, started weeping. And, uh, and she just weeped and wept and <laughs> was, you know, everybody was kind of quiet. And, and Harry sort of in his gruff way said, come on, Agnes, blow out the candles. And she couldn't do it because she's just crying. And so Harry goes, well, I'll do it. And so he blew out the candles for her. And then his wife brought out a knife, and, and, the, and Harry, the rough guy, says, hey, cut, cut the cake, Agnes, cut the cake. And, and again, she just stood there. She was just weeping. She couldn't move. And so um, she looked at Tony, who was kind of standing there, and, and he goes, she goes, hey, mister, do I have to cut the cake? And he goes, it's your cake. You can do whatever you want to with it. And she says, well, I'd love to show it to my mom. And, uh, and Tony says, you got to do it right now? And she's like, yeah, she's just two doors down. And so she takes the cake and leaves and goes to show this birthday cake to her mom, who's two doors down. And um, while, you know, she leaves, he, Tony again says there's just silence in the room because nobody knows what to do. And so nobody knows yet that he's a Christian. They just think he's a sociology professor. And so he says, you know, at that moment, I just said, I yelled out to everybody, hey, let's pray for Agnes. And so he said a prayer and he, you know, prayed. for God's restoration in her life and for God's redemption of her pain and her suffering and her hurt. <clears throat> and after he finished praying, he said he looked up and the guy Harry was about eight inches from his face, <laughs> the big dirty guy. And he goes, hey, Campolo, he said, you told me you're a sociology professor. You're a pastor. And Tony goes, no, I wasn't. <laughs> he said, uh, and anyway, and then Harry goes, well, you know, he said, what kind of church do you go to? And Tony says, in a split instance, he said, God just sort of gave me these words. He said, I go to the kind of church that throws birthday par- parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. in the morning. <clears throat> and Harry responded. He said, no, you don't. I join a church like that, right? <clears throat> and, uh, and that's the message for today, is that God decided to build his church, this church, <clears throat> upon the faith of a redeemed prostitute, Right? God chose to build his church upon the faith of redeemed, very, very broken people, right? And to be honest with you, the Bible talks about heaven, and part of heaven is, is a celebration, it's a feast, right? And it's a place where God celebrates us and celebrates his son, obviously. And rather than a birthday cake, as we look around the room this morning, there's no cake with candles, but there's wine and there's bread. And this wine and the bread symbolize this great feast that we will celebrate in heaven, right? It's this idea that all of us who are sinners and all of us who are broken, sexually broken, broken by addiction, broken by dishonesty, broken by placing our identity in things other than God, that all of us who are broken get invited to this great feast, right? Where we get to sit down at the table. And the declaration is, you are forgiven. 
right? Because of the perfect life, death, and resurrection of my son, Jesus, because of your faith and trust in him, you're forgiven, you're right. And not only that, but you're welcomed into the family of God, right? So this meal today, again, of bread and wine, it means so many things. But what it means maybe more than anything else is that you are right with God because you trust in Christ alone for your salvation and that you believe that it's through Jesus that he's your only hope, that he's made you right. And so what I would encourage you to do this morning as you prepare to take this bread and wine, to tear a piece of bread, dip it in the wine or dip it in the grape juice on this side of the room, that you would remember that God calls broken people, right? Broken people who believe and trust in him and then he longs to do and will do marvelous things in your life. One quick caveat is this meal is not for people who don't trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. It's not for people who trust in their own righteousness, but it's for those who trust in the righteousness of Christ. Let me read the words of institution and then I will set you free to receive God's mercy and his grace through this meal. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you um, that you our God, who builds your kingdom upon the faith um, of a prostitute, Father, of a, of a broken woman. And Father, um, that Jesus was really clear that um, she's no worse than we are, Father. We are every bit as bad. Maybe, maybe some of us are worse. Maybe most of us are worse, Father. And so, Father, I just pray that we would hear this declaration from you today, that whether we are a prostitute or a preacher, that we're made right with you, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness that Jesus freely offers us if we trust in him alone. And so, Father, I ask that as always, that your voice of forgiveness and that your voice of mercy and your voice of grace would drown out the accusations of Satan, Father. And that for those of us who trust in your son alone for our righteousness and for our salvation, uh, that we would believe not only in our heads, but all the way down into our hearts that we are forgiven, that we are loved, and that we're perfect in your sight because of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.